Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, welcome to Life's a Beach. This week I chat to ex-policeman Alan Sparks, who received the Cross of Valour for his rescue of a young boy in a stormwater drain at Coffs Harbour. Singlers joins me for Beach Banner, talking about his most influential moment as a lifeguard. And I answer questions from the mailbag. Now let's hear from Alan. Well, today in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have Alan Sparks in. Uh, I've known Alan for a fair few years and uh, we've done a, a lot, recently start to do a bit of work together, but good to have you in. Thanks so much, Hoppo. It's uh, fantastic to be here, mate. Look, we'll go back um, a bit of your history. Uh, you are a senior constable in the police force years ago. So tell us a bit about that and, and probably what you had to deal with. You would have seen some horrific things in that time. Yeah, I did. I joined the cops when I was 19 years of age. Um, I came in from the bush and my first station was Darlinghurst and then working at King's Cross and worked in uniform for a couple of years and certainly you get exposed to the other side of life working in that area as, as a cop. And then I went into plain clothes, became a detective, uh, again worked in that area, uh, other parts of Sydney and, and back to the CIB. And then in uh, 1989, I transferred up to uh, to Coffs Harbour, where I remained until I was uh, medically discharged in 1998. So in that time, and uh, knowing some of the things you went through, it would have been you know, horrific, and, and, and mentally it would have been a, a struggle towards the, the end of the career? Yeah, it was. It was something that I never anticipated and something I never expected. And in all honesty, something I never believed could ever happen to me. And maybe that lulls you into a false sense of security that uh, you can never, ever develop mental ill health or mental illnesses. And clearly, as, as history shows, I did. I developed two mental illnesses, post-traumatic stress disorder, coupled with depression, ended up with suicidal ideation and uh, came very close to losing my, my life to suicide. Well, we'll go to a story that I think that sort of maybe tipped you over the edge I think some a rescue you did and you got the cross of valor is that an award that's probably is that the highest you can get in, in yeah Australia? it's uh, factually speaking it's the highest bravery award in Australia and there's only ever been five awarded in the past 45 years so it's an honor that I hold very dear to my heart I'm extremely proud of it very humbled by it but as you know it's something that I th- I have always considered that my, my workmate, Gav Dengate, should have also received. So yeah. I, I always like to mention Gav because, I, as you know, I owe my life to him as well. So we'll, we'll dig into the story now. And I think it's an amazing – it relates to myself because I do a lot of rescues over the years as yeah. lifeguards. And, and this is right up there. And I don't know if I would have been able to do what you did. And <laughs> it's, an, it's an amazing effort. So let's tell the listeners and, and, and go back and, and go through that story and, and how it all came about. Yeah, sure. It was in uh, May 1996, and yeah, I, I, I will always remember, or I hope I always remember the day very clearly, and also the circumstances. Yeah, we'd had a, um, there was a, a very s- 
significant east coast lows sitting off Coffs Harbour. And for about five days, we had had absolutely torrential rainfall, 24 hours a day. And literally the whole countryside was completely flooded and there was no capacity for water to be absorbed into the landscape. And I remember, because my wife and I, we lived on the beach, and I remember that morning, the whole shoreline was just full of brown foam. It was extraordinary, the amount of turbulence in the water, and it was just crazy. And Gavin, I said, my workmate, we'd done a, um, a search warrant that morning, and we recovered some jewellery for a beautiful old lady from a nursing home. So we were on a real high this yeah. morning. It was fantastic. And just in the in the meal room, grabbing a cup of tea, and suddenly there's a call come over the radio to say a, a child had been swept into a stormwater pipe. And as detectives, normally you wouldn't respond to that sort of call, um, but just something happened, and Gav and I, we just literally looked at each other and threw our cups in the sink and raced down to the car, and we raced around to the location, and uh, there were a couple of little kids there that, that were just standing there shivering and shaking, and... Uh, and we said, what happened? And they said, oh, we're in the playing on our boogie boards, and then Jai disappeared. And I said, oh, who's Jai? He said, well, he's our friend. How old is he? And, and where did he disappear? And we walked across the road, which was sort of the back of an industrial area, and there's a, a park there, and the, the floodwaters were coming through this park and into this, uh, what I now know is a drain system. And they said, down there, pointing to this whirlpool, which had had formed it was and how much water was there was it you was, could visibly see oh yeah the um the the creek what is traditionally a creek was just completely flooded it was meters wide and i thought dear god you know there's no way that anyone could ever survive being sucked down into that that was my immediate thought and then a workman came over and he said off oh, if you, there's some concrete covers if you lift those off you can actually get down into the drain so gav and i we put our guns and handcuffs in the car and we or we um, with the help of the workmen, we lifted the covers off and we, we jumped in and we could actually see down down the, the drain pipe. Now, the pipe that was there then is different to what it's there now. The council actually replaced the pipe. So, Due to that incident? Possibly, or, I think. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. so, mate. So the pipe itself was only about a metre in diameter, but we could look down. We thought we could see the child's body down the pipe. So I said to Gav, look, I'll get on a rope. I'll go down and see if I can grab him and hoping that if he's still alive, we could re- um, get him out. Or if he was dead, we might be able to resuscitate him. So that was our plan. The workman gave me a rope. I tied her in my waist. So just the basic rope. That, well, <laughs> there's no like these days. There's you know harnesses and everything. Yeah, else. no. Just the basic rope. It was just a rope that he grabbed from the workshop, and in all honesty, it was a bit like a some twine than a rope. <laughs> and I think back then I was probably about 110 kilo. And I said to Gav, look, I'll go and get it. If I'm in trouble, I'll tug on the rope three times, which is a traditional um, signal for a crisis. And then when I get him, just pull me back. That's what we thought. Yeah, we did. I don't think we either of us anticipated or envisaged the power of the water. And I remember getting in feet first and suddenly I was off. I was on like one of those uh, water slide things. <laughs> I thought, Jesus. And I, I don't know how far I went down, but it, I, I realised that this rope was going to snap. And I tugged on the rope, Gav pulled me back. Because I, I started to really crap myself there and then. I thought, you know, that's... This is this is not good. This is dangerous. And I got back to um, back to the surface, and by that stage, the SS had arrived. More cops had arrived, and and I I said, oh beauty, oh, the, the professionals here, they can take over. <laughs> anyway, they just put a big lifeline around my waist and <laughs> and a bowline, and down I went again. And then and that I, must have been scary going the second time, knowing what was there, and, and 
in your mind, did you think there's no way this kid could could have survived? I think that was, from memory, it's like there's a chance. There's just a chance. So we've got to do whatever we can. And I wasn't conscious of, of the actual risk. It was frightening, but I wasn't thinking, Al, you could die down here. Yeah. I wasn't thinking that. Oh, you didn't have that, yeah. No, nah, but I was certainly frightened. I don't, I don't dispute that. Anyway, I went down again, and the water just literally carried me like a leaf. It was just so powerful. And I remember just being in there thinking, holy shit. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm flying here. Could you see? Was it dark? Was it? Yeah, I had a torch. Could... Oh, okay. And so the torchlight was illuminating. And as I got closer, you know, trying to sort of see what it was, and then, then I realised, oh, this is just a branch. It's not, not the kid at all. Then I was like, ah, dang. <laughs> So I tugged on the rope, and again, not thinking things through, and never been in that experience before, I didn't realise that by me stopping, my, the volume of my body size created like a, a blockage. Right. So as soon as I stopped, then I blocked myself in. So I, I was banking up all the water, and suddenly I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going to drown. I'm, I'm in a really bad place here, and I was just hoping the guy that somebody realised and unbeknownst to me, Gavin had actually got into the pipe and he saw the water volume changing and the water level rising and he sent a message to the surface saying, for God's sake, just tug on that rope. Did you have much, was there much room then from the top of the drain pipe to where the water is rising? I remember seeing the water level rise rapidly and I thought, oh God. And I thought, if I stay... Up, I'm going to create more volume. So I had the, at least I had the presence of mind to think, lay as flat as you can under the water, and that gives people a better chance to pull you backwards. Right. So they'd pull me backwards, and when I run out of breath, I'd just arch up, create that little air pocket, grab whatever air I could, and go back under the water. Right. So, so you're just holding your breath all the time, and then just yeah. coming up when you needed a breath, and yeah. and go again. Jeez, yeah. That must have been pretty scary that stage. Yeah, it was, and I remember thinking, whoever tied the bowline around me, I thought, <laughs> I really hope you know you're not to me, because if, if this thing gives, I'm I'm yeah, dead. Yeah. So uh, then I was pulled back to the surface, and um, yeah, at that stage, I thought there's no chance that this child could possibly have survived. And then I was thinking in my mind, well, if, if we can get access, if there's more inspection points or if we can get access, at least we've got a chance to try and find his body. And then a guy, uh, actually a former police officer who used to work with the Darlinghurst, he owned a, a country produce store and he came running across the road and said, oh, what, what's going on? We said, well, a child's been swept down this pipe. He said, we heard a child screaming under our store. Just this, this incredible scream went, went right under our store. So I thought that gives gives us a point of reference. And while we're sort of standing there working things out, a call came over the radio to say they can hear a child screaming down the Pacific Highway. And that was like, the Pacific Highway? My God, he is so far away. That's how far he's been washed. And I thought, wow. But the fact they said they could hear him screaming, I think my brain's saying, he's alive, let's get there. So we just raced down and the highway was blocked off. At this stage... I'm in my suit pants, nothing else. Gav's in his shirt and suit pants. He's saturated. And we jump out of the car and I saw a, a paramedic. Mike Marr was laying on his stomach with his head down into a manhole. That's a bit strange. And as I got out of the car, I'm not sure what point, but I could hear this, the screams of a kid. And these screams were like nothing I'd ever heard before. 
And probably the the whole experience amplified those screams in my mind. I don't know. But I remember running over and I think Mike was screaming down into the hole. I remember looking down and there's water bubbling up in the manhole and there's the sounds are coming up through the water. And I really found it difficult to, to try and process how can somebody be alive under the water and how can their screams be coming up. But there wasn't time to dwell on that. And I'm trying to think, okay, what are we going to do? How can we ever get in there? And I don't know where it came from, but somebody, all of it was like magic. Suddenly there was a ladder goes straight down this manhole. And Gavin, uh, without consultation, he just goes straight down, down straight the ladder. Down, yeah. No lifeline, nothing, straight down the ladder. And he, he disappeared under the water. And I've got actually got TV footage, camera footage of, of him actually trying to squeeze his way down this oh, ladder. That manhole. Yep. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a bit bigger than Gav, not a huge amount, but, but a bit bigger. And so I followed Gav down and into the water. I remember it was so cold and it's filthy dirty. You can't see anything. And it literally, I was just remember just clawing under the water, not knowing where we're going to, what we're <laughs> doing. And suddenly I pop up and there's Gav beside me and there are six stormwater pipes coming in on top of it, some with a lot of water, some with not much water. And the roar, that's right. I remember two things, the screams of the kid and the roar of the water. Yeah. It was, the noise was crazy. And we didn't have a torch or did, I can't remember, but the screams were just reverberating around yeah. and we didn't know which. So you still wouldn't know which way to go, where he was. No, just we didn't know. Just be echoing through the, the storm water. Yeah. Mm. So Gav was searching the pipes and I started to search and one of the pipes I went up, I thought I can just hear him a bit clearer. Fortunately, that didn't have a huge volume of water coming in on it. So I said to Gav, I said, mate, we've got to make a call. I think it's this one. You go back to the surface and try and find a way into this pipe. Try and get to the kid somehow. Unbeknownst to us, uh, we didn't know, but the council was organising a backhoe to come down and dig the highway up oh, to try and get to him. Because I think we were both conscious that if, it, if we had another downpour, the whole thing fills up and we're all dead. Oh, yeah, there's, there's no way out of it. So we, we were really racing against time. Obviously, the, we could hear the kids screaming, so we knew he was still alive, but we had to get to him as quickly as possible. And then Michael Ma, the paramedic, so Gav went to the surface. In some ways, I regret making that decision. In some ways, it would have been phenomenal to have Gav there to, to actually be there when we got the kid. But that's the decision I, I made. And Michael Ma, the paramedic, he came down into the system. He brought a torch and a rope and tied that off of me and I started then to make my way up the pipe to where I thought the kid was. And I, you know, trying to crawl up a stormwater pipe that's full of crap and mud and slime, to try and get a hold on it is, is so difficult. And the physical exertion to try and force my way against the water and, and make way in that pipe was, was draining. But the closer I got, the louder the screams got. Right. And then I, I was able to hold on and, and shine my torchlight and I could see the kid's face and that's all I could see was just this and I can still picture it, this little yeah. white face was what like, was that feeling like oh it was mixed hoppo because it, it looked like a ghost right okay. it was look like honestly it looked like a ghost was um, screaming at me so Jai's screaming at me Michael Mars screaming behind me have you got him have you got him and I'm saying Pardon me, but for <laughs> F's sake, shut up, Michael. <laughs> I'm trying to communicate with a kid. Jai, Jai, shut up, you know. 
Um, and I now know that the structure of the pipe system that he was caught in like a T-piece. And I, I can't, I don't know what he's hanging on to, but I do know for a fact that he'd been hanging on to that piece of whatever it was for about 45 minutes in the pitch dark wow. with that water absolutely trying to tear him away from it. And had he let go, he was dead. He was yeah. absolutely gone. So this little kid was so brave for so long. And that's the point I'd, I'd really like to make, Hoppo, is that yeah. whilst Gavin and I have been recognised, and Michael, for our bravery, the bravery of that kid, beyond anything, yeah. Yeah, definitely amazing. To, to hang on for 45 minutes, 11-year-old kid, yeah. and basically and, thinking no one's going to come for you. Yeah, and just yeah. screaming for 45 minutes. Yeah. And it was. I know how dark that area was, and I know how powerful that water was. And how he hung on for that time, I, I don't know. It is superhuman. Anyway, I was able to, let, to work out that if he let go of what he's hanging on to, he'd get washed down to me. And I convinced him to let it go. And that, again, would have been a really difficult thing to let go because that was his lifeline. Anyway, he did, and he, he literally got washed down into my arms. And I just grabbed hold of him and that, that feeling of, oh, Jesus, I've got him. Yeah. I've actually got him. And uh, I said... I don't know why, but I said, you say, thank you, God. And he, he said, oh, thank you, God. And he started to bawl his eyes out. And I, and I started to sob. Yeah. Um, I don't, not ashamed to say that. Yeah, and the, we've still got the, uh, the, the actual TV camera footage of the moment he comes up out of that drain, which is just so powerful. But sadly, uh, from that time, uh, whilst I was in a state of poor mental health at the time of that rescue, my mental health uh, declined into mental illnesses and as I said uh, attempting to end my own life which led to the the cessation of my career uh, some months later on and I think that's what people don't realize and, and I've seen that in lifeguards as well that we deal with the rescues and the emotion of it all but they don't realize what it does to our minds down the track and and how we can go off the rails uh, it all looks great at the time and you know, everyone's the hero but the impact it has on the personal life of the of the rescuer. Correct, and and the trauma related mental ill health or the trauma related mental illness is something that uh, we know statistically has a significant impact on first responders, particularly uh, our military. But what I've I guess that the greatest joy I've received out of this whole uh, incident is a knowledge I've gained from my own experiences, the knowledge I've gained from working with experts in trauma-related mental illness, and the, the capacity that I've been able to use that experience to then change the way we approach the working environments of first responders and the positive outcomes that I'm now seeing, particularly working with you guys. That's been phenomenal. Yeah, no, and you know, that brings me to... to of what you're doing with us the well-being program and and as you've explained over the years it's like we train ourselves physically to go out in the ocean do the rescue bring the person back in but we never really have ever trained our minds to prepare for a major incident you know we get a lot of suicides up at the the gap there off bondi we deal with a lot of that body retrievals and we never train our mind to be able to do that. And I think if you can talk a bit about the program that we've all put together and you've come and, and the lifeguards are really embracing it and you could see how much they're appreciating the, the training and the course that we're doing yeah. here. 
And I think that's, uh, for me, to see the, the appetite of you guys. And I, it's when I met you, Hoppo, that I then understood what, what work a lifeguard does. And I had no idea how, how dangerous and how traumatic your, your work is. And what I've always believed is that first responders are very vulnerable to developing chronic stress. And if you become chronically stressed, you're then very even further vulnerable to the development of trauma-related mental illnesses. So what my goal has been is if we can prevent people becoming chronically stressed or reduce the incidence of it, we stand a far greater chance to reduce the severity and incidence of trauma-related mental illness. So that's when I started to discuss with my colleague, Dr David Set about your request to how can we develop a program that trains our people to be psychologically ready to do the work they have to do. And so we developed the program called Operational Readiness so that you guys can be operationally ready at all times to do the job and understand that if if things start to go south, what you can do from the outset or how beneficial engagement of professionals can be to assist a faster recovery. And it's a program that Dave and I are extremely proud of. And I think this, what we have seen, we are capable of doing is evident by the responses we're getting from you and the other lifeguards. And because we've run two modules of the program now, we are seeing that module one, people are embracing the knowledge that they have received and they're adapting it into their operational programs and they are becoming more operationally ready and the, the the further education we give you it allows you to know I can do this myself I can see how we all need to do it and it and it invokes that team approach to let's look after ourselves because we know how to look after ourselves and that's what I didn't know when I became so ill I didn't know how my work could affect me I didn't know how to prepare it, and I didn't know how to remain operationally ready. And that's a, that's a key principle. If people know how to become or how to stay operationally ready, the benefits uh, are multifaceted. And I can see that now with the, with the team we've got. It's, it's really having a great effect on them. And like back in the 90s when I started as a lifeguard, it was, you know, anything major was just a, a tap on the back, yeah, well done, and then toughen up if you've got a problem. It's yeah. something that... It's good now we're out there, we're all speaking about it and we've got these courses coming in and, and, and you guys helping out, it's fantastic. And So if anyone wants to get in contact with you guys, because I, I can't recommend this program anymore, it's amazing how much uh, success it, it is for us oh, and our thanks. team. And I appreciate everything you, you do for us and, and David as well. So anyone out there that listening that wants to get in contact, is, is there a way they can to, maybe they've got a team that they want to, uh, do the same program? Yeah, sure. I mean, my website is simply www.allensparks, uh, dot com, And uh, Dr. David Said is S-A-I-D. And we are both on LinkedIn and certainly can contact us through LinkedIn or through my website. And we would love to uh, have the opportunity to help other organisations. No, that's fantastic. And there's one last question I want to put out there is, um, what's the beach mean to you? It's not so much the beach, it's the ocean. And the ocean for me uh, was a significant part of my recovery program um, through being under the water. Um, 
I, I ended up becoming a dive master. So being under the water is a great place of sanctuary. And then a um, bit of a crazy thing my family and I did. 2009, 2010, we bought a boat in England and sailed it back to Australia. <laughs> so I know that the ocean uh, is a very powerful place. I, I have seen the ocean in its violent state. I've seen the ocean in its most pristine, calm state. But for me, the ocean is a, is a place of sanctuary. Yep. And, um, and do you think that that got you through those tough times? Certainly, uh, the, the, being able to accomplish that sailing trip was a major part of my recovery. But Hoppo, with respect to you and the lifeguards all over the world, um, I see you as guardians of the ocean. And I see you as guardians of those who, who love to beat the ocean. And the respect and admiration I have for you and all the lifeguards in Australia and around the world is I know how much you cherish the responsibility that you that you take on and and my utmost respect and admiration for the courage and bravery you guys show throughout your careers to to help save the lives of so many thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, thanks for that, Alan. It's uh, appreciated. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of lifeguards around the world, professional, that, that do do a great job. Yeah. So. Mate, thanks for uh, coming in and, and having a chat in the beach shack, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Always good to see you, Hoppo. Thanks, mate. What an inspiring story we just heard from Alan. If you want to know more about Alan's work, feel free to visit his website, www.alansparks.com. Now Singlist joins us in the beach shack. Hey, Singlets, thanks for coming in, mate, to the beach shack. Thanks, Hop. Good to be here. Mate, I was wanted to ask you a question. We've worked together for many years and just see what was the most influential moment that you've had being a professional lifeguard? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And I don't think I can narrow it down to one moment of you know influence or anything like that. I think what I would put it down to is the biggest influence and impact I've had out of the job is is definitely the children and the kids. Yep. You know, as lifeguards down there we're able to be role models for kids and influential characters of the community. And, and you, you see that every day down there, the young kids coming up and, you know, it's really taking an interest in what you do, mm. you know, the way they look up to you and, and, and the way that the parents talk about the way the kids love the show and love the lifeguards and, you know, and, and so to be an influential character or, you know, sort of someone of influence to the young kids and maybe role models, if you like a better word, is huge for me, and I think that's probably the best impact you could have on on anyone. Yeah, I think you're hundred percent right. It's something that, you know, like football players or cricketers or any type of sports person, a lot of kids look up to that, and I think mm. we sort of slide into that category where they do look up to us, and a lot of people, the kids come up and they want to be lifeguards one day, and that's something that yeah, we can all be proud of. Yeah, and you know, it's it's more than just a job. You know, we, we do give back to the community. Yes, we get paid and things, but we, you know, it's it's more than just a job. It's a lifestyle. And I think a lot of the kids and, and even more so their parents see what we do and they see it as being really healthy and, and, you know, sort of it's a good lifestyle. You're out in the sun, you're on the beach, but you're also saving people's lives. You're doing the first aids, you know, your, your community engagement and, and information and, and all of that. So I think that encompasses everything and, and it's just a really good thing to be part of. And I think for that reason, the parents that I've spoken to, you know, love the fact that the kids either love the show or they love following the lifeguards or they, they started doing nippers because they want to be a lifeguard one day. And, you know, that's brilliant. 
Yeah, and I think also there's many kids out there that have sent um, through stories that by watching Bondi Rescue, they've they've rescued someone, whether it's overseas in their own country or whether it's in Australia or they've done a resuscitation. Like We yeah. sort of take it a bit for granted on how many rescues we do and resuscitations. We talk about it quite easy, but to a person or a child, that's something massive to be able to do a rescue on someone. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, because we're doing these these rescues every day and, and they just become numbers and we're so used to doing it, we do it with our eyes closed almost. But for, you know, these stories you hear about kids in backyard pools rescuing their brother or their sister and, and being able to sort of, you know, go and get help or, or you know, put them in the recovery position and this and that because of yeah. what they've seen us do. I mean, that's just massive, isn't it? Yeah, I remember one stands out from the Northern Territory years ago. Probably the show had been gone four or five years and her young sort of two-year-old, I think, slipped out the backyard, fell in the backyard pool. She came running out. He was on the bottom. She jumped in, pulled him out. Now, she had no first aid training, nothing, uh, but was a, a mad fan of watching Bondi Rescue. So what we did and what she saw, she just gave it a go on, mm. on resuscitation uh, when she pulled the child out and did enough to keep him going with the oxygen in the blood to, to keep his um, you know, brain yeah. going. And... When the paramedics turned up, they were able to get him back and he had no brain damage and he ended up um, with a full recovery. And to this day, she believes it was because watching the show, if the show wasn't around, she thought she'd probably go on a mass panic and he'd yeah. probably be dead. Yeah, uh, that's just so powerful. That's mm. incredible. I mean, you know, show me a medium of education that's more powerful than that. And that's not even what we aspire to do. We're not, a, you know, we're sort of just doing a job, but we're... The, the, the fact that we can get that information out there to the young kids is just, you know, hugely powerful. It's amazing. Yeah, and that's, you know, probably the main reason we do the, the TV show and, and it's having a great effect on, on not only in Australia, but internationally. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's huge. I mean, you, like you said, you're getting these stories um, almost monthly, weekly, whatever they are, coming from all parts of the world to the, the guy's Instagram accounts or the Bondi Lifeguard's Instagram account that these stories are happening, you know, quite regularly and quite often and, and they're in the most obscure parts of the world. Yeah. But it's just, it's amazing the reach that the show has yeah. and, and whatnot. And, and what a great feeling for us that we can receive these letters and know that someone's life has been saved. Yeah, incredible. Like I said, probably the most powerful part of the job by far for me, that there's no greater honour or, or responsibility than, than, you know, passing that on. All right, mate, great to have you near the beach shack and uh, I'll see you down the beach soon. Thanks, Hop. Good to be here. I love hearing from singlets, but I love hearing from my fans even more. So let's kick off this week's Mailbag. This letter is from Katie Troy. She's from Ireland. And her question is, has any lifeguard ever rescued a person with Down syndrome? Well, yeah, we get a lot of people down the beach and uh, there has been people with Down syndrome that we have rescued in the past. And uh, like anybody else, that uh, they get into a, a rip and get themselves into trouble. Uh, but most of the time they understand what a rip is and are very cautious when they go into the water. But definitely... We have rescued a Down syndrome person. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. 
That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.